My guest today is Claire Coleman, one of the most trusted, familiar and respected names in beauty journalism. When I retire, I want to be able to shop in Marks and Spencer Simply Food. When I was dating, I used to have like a couple of lines where I used to think, after a date, I was like, if I had a choice between seeing my friends next Friday and seeing this person, would I see them or would I see my friends? I suppose I worry about the confusing understanding that we have of what people actually look like at a certain age. I do think that now we have the opportunity to make our outsides reflect how we feel internally. That's probably what a lot of it is about, and I don't think it's what. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Claire Coleman, one of the most trusted, familiar and respected names in beauty journalism. She is known for being thorough, relying heavily on evidence and science to debunk myths or bring clarity to the latest attention-grabbing headlines. In fact, she is so detail-oriented that I've been calling her the forensic beauty journalist for years now. She was born in Hitchin, Hertfordshire and raised in Surrey. Her father is a NASA scientist and her mother is an actress. She studied at Cambridge University and embarked on a career in journalism as soon as she graduated. Although, as I'm sure we will discuss, the path has not always been smooth. Claire is also a returning guest to the podcast and she is my friend. She is someone to whom I regularly go for, to for advice and to find out what she thinks about certain topics because she is so thoughtful and considered. Claire doesn't tend to put pen to paper or indeed open her mouth unless she has really thought about what she is going to say. It's why I thought a ride through her life lessons would make for an interesting conversation and also because I will take any opportunity to quiz her about pretty much anything because her perspective is always helpful. So shall we begin? Welcome back to the podcast, Cece. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for such an introduction. Well, it's so true. It's just I was trying to think about all of the things that sort of I think about when I think of you and it is you're so so thoughtful obviously I call you my clever friend I also call you the forensic beauty journalist but I just know that if I need to get clarity on a subject you are one of the few people I will go to and say Cece can you help me with this because I don't think I'm never too embarrassed to say I'm not as clever as you what should I be thinking about when it comes to this and you that's really kind of you but then the thing is that I actually feel really out of my depth here because we're not talking about that sort of stuff today. We're talking about personal stuff, which I don't normally talk about. And even though it's more career focused, that I mean, there are other things that come, we will touch on. But I, yeah, I don't necessarily always think of myself as having emotional intelligence, even if I do think of myself as having intellectual intelligence. So this is a little bit of a diversion for me. Interesting. Okay, so do you see um, the 
intelligence versus emotional intelligence thing as being a you are stronger in one or the other do you think there are people who can have a balance of both I think there are people who can have a balance of both and I also think that my emotional intelligence has grown over the years I definitely think I'm more emotionally intelligent than I was 10 15 20 years ago and so I feel like emotional intelligence is definitely something that you can work on I feel like intellectual intelligence I feel like you can learn stuff but I do wonder whether there's an innate type of mind that has the ability to grasp concepts quickly or have a certain plasticity of thinking that I think is different from emotional intelligence that's interesting do you think emotional intelligence is just is something that is uh, formed and made stronger I suppose by experience I think there's probably an element of that but like when I think about me I've got a younger sister she's two and a half years younger than me and when I think about the two of us growing up like she is super smart she's like a lawyer and, and you know she's like she's not dumb but she didn't tick boxes in the way that I did when we were at school together but she was so much more socially adept than I was when we were at school I was like geeky and nerdy and a little bit of an outsider whereas my sister was very easy to get on with and she's very sociable and very kind of like chatty and amenable and so I think there's a certain amount I mean I don't know whether that is emotional intelligence for me I feel like emotional intelligence yes has come with experience but also with stuff like therapy and mm. kind of like getting to know yourself a little bit more and yeah I suppose understanding people just by dint of spending more time with people as you get older yeah Okay, interesting. I reckon we should get stuck into it now because um, I like to ask ask my guests about their relationship with risk and your risk that you've talked about. You've talked about a couple actually, but yours are re again really thoughtful and considered. But generally speaking, how would you describe your relationship with risk? I think I. I think I am, I wouldn't say I was a massive gambler, I think, but I wouldn't say I was risk averse. I think I'm probably like a six, seven out of 10. I remember being asked this sort of question when I was like trying to put together a pension or something like that. And I was just like, oh, all I want to tell you is that when I retire, I want to be able to shop in Marks and Spencer's Simply Food. I don't want to have to buy value ranges. Like that's my, <laughs> take from that whatever you think my attitude to risk is. But I think... I think it's difficult because I think like with a lot of my life, you might look at it and think that I was more risk prone than I actually am. But actually, when I look at it, it, it hasn't felt that way to me. So like being freelance might look like being very risky. But if you put that in the context of the fact that my mum was an actress and so I was brought up around someone who didn't have a nine to five job. Mm. And also that, you know, I my family are not a million miles away from me still like their dad is sorry I live in London I was very lucky that although it was never discussed I always felt like I had a fallback like if everything went to shit I had the opportunity I knew that there would be a roof over my head and food in my mouth and so risk doesn't really look like risk in the same way if you know that you've got a fallback which I never used and I never had to use but I think with hindsight I don't underestimate 
the value that that gives you and the, the security that that gives you. So whatever you're doing, although it might be perceived as risky to someone else, actually, it's not as risky as all that. Do you think, given the way your brain works, that you are a calculated risk taker? Um, yeah, but I still play the lottery, even though I know the odds are diabolical. <laughs> well, you're also a skier, and to me, that <laughs> is a high-risk pursuit. I think... I think I have confidence in my own ability, but increasingly, like I remember when I first started learning to drive and my mum was like, it's not you that I don't trust, it's the other people on the road. And I kind of get that. But then I am quite circumspect about how I ski. I tend to avoid skiing in busy areas. I, I'll back myself to get down something difficult, but if there's loads of people getting down it who I don't think are that good, I probably won't go down it because I don't trust them not to crash into me. Uh, the Gwyneth defense <laughs> <laughs> um but okay skiing aside when I talked about when you said what your biggest risk was you actually said that for you it was personally getting married or rather getting into a long-term relationship and having a baby and I thought that was really interesting because actually Anita Bagrandes came on the podcast and she said that the biggest risk she thinks anyone can take is falling in love yeah I think like it's really funny because when I when you asked me that question I thought about it it sort of shocked me what I came up with, but I was single for so long and I knew exactly how my life worked and I knew how to make my life work as a single person. And I was entirely autonomous and I made the decisions that were right for me. And for all that there were other people I had to consider in my life, like my friends and my family, um, I could essentially do whatever I wanted to do. And it also is a big shift from feeling like you're entirely reliant on yourself for your happiness, your sense of self, your sense of purpose and all the rest of it, to essentially outsourcing some of that, which you do when you end up in a relationship. And like I always said for a long while that it was no surprise to me that the thing that I felt I didn't have autonomy over, which was whether or not I was in a relationship, was the thing that didn't seem to work for me. Because, and I think that all of that fed into my feeling of being a control freak. Because with work, if I put my mind to it, I knew I could do it. Um, whereas with a relationship, it's not just that you that has to want to do it and has to want to make it work. And so, yeah, I feel like I did, it, it was a risk. I, I did feel like putting a lot on the line. Um, but it happened at a point where I really didn't expect it to happen. And it happened at a point where I had, I think, come to terms with the fact that I had a lovely life as a single person. And I was, there were lots of things that I could do as a, a, on my own. And there was a life that I had curated that didn't feel like a second best life. Um, and then there was an opportunity for someone else to be in that life in a way that I hadn't anticipated that's so interesting because I was at a lunch last week and we were talking about um it was next to Sally and Ali Adiola um beauty fans will know Sally's been on the podcast before and we were talking about dating apps and Adiola and I were talking about the fact that when you get to a point where you're very very comfortable with the life that you've created for yourself there's sort of this notion that a relationship will be the cherry on top a relationship will somehow sort of put the guilt, uh, you know, that will make it somehow sparkle a little bit brighter. 
when actually what the experience is is that you're having to almost like not downgrade that's probably the word the wrong way of saying it but you're having to compromise in a way that you found you found a groove you found something that makes you really happy you found a way of living that is really really good for you and bringing someone else into it inevitably means that you're going to have to make compromises that perhaps you wouldn't want to make and so I mean I think that's so true exactly I mean I when I was dating I used to have like a couple of lines where I used to think after a date I was like if I had a choice between seeing my friends next Friday and seeing this person would I see them or would I see my friends and then I realised that was an absolutely ridiculous bar to expect someone to exceed because I love my friends. I've known them for years. They're easy company, of course. I'd rather see them than pretty much anyone else. And so, yeah, I had to take that that idea away. But, yeah, I think you do. Like, if you – I mean, I read all those things about how you should, like, only sleep on one side of the bed and have half your wardrobe empty, and I always thought that was absolutely insane. And But then I kind of got to the point of understanding – that if you want to be in a relationship you have to accept that there are going to be things that you have to give up and Mm. you do and you have to work out whether it's what someone's worth giving those things up for and I don't think that's a bad thing like I don't think it was a bad thing to have a life that was so brilliant that I wasn't prepared to put up with someone just okay Mm. But I guess we're maybe the first generation really experiencing that because women, a 45-year-old single woman from my parents' generation would have been, oh, what, what's gone wrong there kind of vibe. Whereas now it's like one's own business, has own home, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so the parameters are, are, are entirely different. There's, there's sort of the, the notion of waiting around for someone to complete you, in inverted commas, is sort of obsolete. And that's true to an extent and I do think you're right you know we can run our own businesses like the rise in the number of women choosing to be solo parents um through uh, sperm donation and things like that means that we do have all these opportunities I still think we live in a very couple focused world I still think we live in a very heterosexual couple focused world and it like I think I spent so long not being in a couple and not being a mother I do try to be very conscious of those sorts of things. Yes, it's funny you say that because a very good friend of mine, like someone who's very important in my life, who I worked with for a long time, is getting married in a few weeks. And she invited me to the wedding and I politely declined months and months and months and months ago. And I just said, look, my experience of weddings over the years has just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Because as a single person, you are you are a spare part. You're sort of you're fitted in where there's room for you. It's never that fun traveling to those things, overnighting on your own. You're always on your own at some point, and you have to find a sort of a, a pleasant couple who don't mind sort of letting you latch on. And these, I don't have the big sort of group of friends like you've got that go away. All of my friends are kind of all over the place, so it's not like I can. Anyway, she said to me a few times would you consider changing your mind? And I feel so awful because on the surface of it, I can absolutely change my mind and I can go. But I now have, I would say, five weddings worth of experience of coming back and feeling wretched and feeling really bad. So I'm sort of, I'm sticking to my guns, but I I feel like I'm being a very bad friend. I think you should be. I mean, I think like kind of, that was one of the other things I was thinking about, about making decisions for yourself and making decisions that serve you and 
I don't know. There's a part of me that just thinks if she's a good friend, she should understand that. Oh, I know that I know that she does, but I also know that I her saying please would you reconsider is because she would like me to be part of her special day which is yeah. so flattering and so nice of her and I would love to be there but I also just don't want to it's more expensive to stay in a hotel overnight on your own mm-hmm. like when you actually it's all of those things but and I'm sure some listeners can email me if they think I'm being a garbage human or if they think I don't think you are at all I don't think you are at all and also I just I kind of think again it's, it's one of those things the like it's the the importance that's placed on these really kind of quite antiquated rituals. Like mm. the number of people who got in touch with me on social media after I had my son, after I got married, far exceeded the number of people who have ever contacted me about any of my kind of career highs. And that, it sounds really churlish to say that upset me, but that bothered me for all the people I was before I was a wife and mother and all the people who aren't wives and mothers because I think it's shit I wanted to ask you about that because I think there is something in that and as a 45 year old woman who's never been engaged married or had a child I haven't had everyone that I've known at one point in whether it's a Facebook post or cards or whatever congratulate me on having I don't know be on being alive yeah. You don't necessarily notice it. But when I speak to people like you, and then actually you realize it's almost these, they're rites of passage, aren't they? And you sort of mm-hmm. feel like it's like being in brownies and you get that badge that you wear. And you, I realize that I'm sort of getting further on in life. And there has been, it sounds really maudlin, it's not meant to be, but there's been nothing to celebrate. There's been nothing that is broadly celebratable. And so it's interesting to hear that for you, who is so accomplished and has done so well in your career to hear that it it kind of it makes sense but it is sad isn't it yeah I think it's really sad I mean it's like you know there's that sex in the city episode which I just think it's like you know well like why don't you get your gift list like you know then exactly the number of people that you've like given wedding presents to and engagement presents to and kids birthday presents to and all the rest of it and it's obviously it's not about getting stuff it's about having it's about having people celebrate you and I think it's really sad that essentially all of the things where we celebrate people aren't just about them they're about someone else because they're either about them finding a partner and you know getting married or they're about them having a child and it is crap and I don't think are you quite mindful then about when somebody gets a buy a really good uh, piece in a a really good byline or gets a new job are you mindful of making an effort to really celebrate that I can tell by your body language, you know. <laughs> I, I worry that I'm not, and that's the thing. I think I, I was going to say I'd like to think that I am that person. I suppose I'd like to think that when I see pieces in papers or see pieces in magazines that I do think are really good, I'll tell people, and I do try and sort of, like, celebrate them. Um, but no, I suppose I don't, like, necessarily send bunches of flowers or cards in the way that I should. I do a very good job of talking the talk, but not walking the walk, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can make that our resolution, can't we, from here on in? We'll just, like... I'm good with that. <laughs> Pat people on the back. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you said something about uh, the, when you talked about the risk of getting married and being in a long-term relationship, having a baby. You said you did love your single life, but you didn't always like being single. And I just wanted to unpick that a little bit. Like when you think about it now, what were the things that you didn't enjoy about single life? A lot of the stuff that you talk about, about, you know, everything being more expensive, you being that extra person, that that kind of feeling of being a second-class citizen about being 
not having achieved the things that everyone else seemed to have managed to achieve so naturally. That kind of assumption that you have spare time because you don't have a partner or children. Like, I just think a lot of the things that essentially are about people being quite lazy. And I, I think it is also... I, I think that probably is a lot of the thing that I had issue with because being single when all my girlfriends were single was absolutely brilliant. And if we'd all stayed single, I don't think there would have been, I don't think I would have felt as left out as I did. Mm. Um, but, and, and one of the things I did actually, even when I was in relationships, because I think one of the things about being single is that feeling that there's something wrong with you because you haven't managed to do what the majority of other people have managed to do. And I had brilliant single friends in various kind of discrete groups. And I made a real point of introducing them to each other at a point when I was actually in a relationship um, because I wanted them to know that there are other brilliant women out there who happened not to be in a relationship and that the not being in a relationship thing was incidental to the fact that they were brilliant women, um, mm. if you see what I mean. Yeah. And so, that, yeah, that, those were the things that I didn't like about being single. Uh, the fundamental, the kind of feeling that you were an outsider, that there was something wrong with you because you hadn't, hadn't managed to find something. That's something I've definitely noticed on um, dating apps. I was talking to Rosie Green about it, saying that um, essentially you sort of get talking to somebody. And I think because of the age thing as well, they tend to start, they like, okay, it, it's like they've seen a nifty little sports car on the forecourt of a garage. And they're like, I like they're this. Like, but where's the rust? Like, exactly. <laughs> there's got to be something wrong with it. So you, yeah, you're, you've got all the right things as it were in your profile for them, but they're like, but where's the catch? Um, and I think that does get louder and louder as time goes on, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I can imagine that it does. And I I, I suppose the thing, you're right, it is that thing. It's like, oh, it's fine if you're single in your 30s or whatever, but it's not so fine if you're single in your 40s, especially if you haven't had a serious relationship, especially if you haven't been, like, married before. It's always more acceptable to be divorced in your 40s than it is to not having ever been married. Yeah, I was really interested. They've got that new, Davina McCall's been campaigning for such a long time to have a, a sort of, I hate the term midlife and can we unpick that in a second but basically a love island for grown-ups as in mm -hmm. people who are in their 40s and it's a two-week thing but they're all people who have been married before and I think have children so it's called my, yeah, yeah it's it called, like, called my yeah. mum your dad so actually that even though it's great that there's that representation it excludes actually the yeah. people who are probably more inclined I don't know what you think about that but I do think it's excluding yeah, yeah, no, think the wrong right. people absolutely right yeah um, yeah can we talk about the term midlife and what you think about it because I feel like it's one of these phrases that has cropped up recently and I really don't care for it and I don't know why it gets my back up but it really does uh do you think the reason it gets your back up is it makes you feel like you're halfway through and you are not okay with the fact that you're kind of like peaked and coming down the other side yeah come <laughs> <laughs> You could have sugarcoated that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But isn't that it? Yeah, let's talk about your emotional intelligence again, Sharon. <laughs> um, let's talk about the fact that I've blundered to the point. Um, possibly, possibly, possibly it's that. 
Um, but then the thing is, that's always been there. Like, and it's really weird because, I mean, I remember when people used to talk about people being middle-aged. I mean, that probably does apply to us now. We're in our 40s. Yeah. And somehow I find that more offensive than midlife. And I may, maybe it's the mid thing. Maybe because, like, you know, nobody wants to be middle of anything. Middle of the road, it's all quite derogatory, isn't it? It's like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm slightly inured to it. Inured to it? Because I do a lot of writing for a newspaper that is obsessed with the idea of midlife. Mm. And so it just becomes a shorthand for their readership. I suppose I reject the idea. Yes, I suppose it is this sort of momentum down from a peak that perhaps bothers me. Because I, I do reject this idea that you are deteriorating. We know that physically and mentally that is inevitable. That is part of the process. But I think now, 25 years into my career, I've accumulated more intelligence, information, perspective, experience. I've never been such a good product, if you like. And yeah. I, I'm only going to get better in over the next 5, 10, 15 years. So the idea to at the, at the point where I've had more information available to me and inside of me than I've ever had before the idea that there's some sort of decline that goes hand in hand with that I just reject I really do and I was saying to my brother the other day when it comes to physical aging as well I think it's really great to have um people like Jennifer Lopez in your eyeline so my brother's 50 and I'm like forget about what he stands for in the actual human being but just keep looking at look at Jared Leto once in a while because he's a year older than you and he looks great I like having JLo in my eye line because I think if you've got someone who's a few years older than you, who again is peaking, it's it's good for the brain, I think. Oh no, I agree. I suppose I worry about the confusing understanding that we have of what people actually look like at a certain age. So like, I just wrote a piece about thinning hair and it's not normal post-menopause to have long, thick hair. And a lot of people will have long, thick hair because in the public eye, they're having extensions of various treatments and all the rest of it. In exactly the same way that it's not normal not to be grey. And I'm not, like, saying we shouldn't be doing any of these things. But I suppose if I go back on the idea that what I want to do is inform people and give them options... I wonder whether the not colouring your hair and accepting that it's going to be thinner and shorter is not really an option if we don't have role models who are also doing that. But yeah, I mean, I am all for colouring my hair, getting the extensions, keeping up with the Botox and probably taking up yoga so I can actually physically kind of do the things that my face is looking like it might be able to. <laughs> yes, they've got, it's got to, you can't just work on one area and not no, exactly. rest. That's where it falls down. You have to, it has to be the 360, exactly. doesn't it? Top to toe. I do think that's really interesting. And I do, I, whenever I sit, stand, I should say, in my bathroom, mixing up yet another batch of Clairol Root Touch-Up in medium golden brown, I do think... And I see my roots and I think, gosh, if I really didn't deal with this, if I wasn't covering this up, I would be significantly grey now. Um, and I don't know whether I've really thought about that and what 
like me gray what me gray means and what me gray would look like all of those things because it is it's just kind of a it's pushing a problem under the carpet a little bit I feel like so much of what we do is about making how we feel on the inside making the outside reflect how we feel on the inside like my grandmother dyed her hair until she was 70s 80s I don't know my mum is in her 70s and she still dyes her hair I don't imagine she's going to stop and both of them had very youthful outlooks on life. And I don't think, you know, I mean, my mum still says she's shocked when she remembers how old her kids are because it means she must be the age that she is. And she just doesn't feel like that person. And so I do think that now we have the opportunity to make our outsides reflect how we feel internally. That's probably what a lot of it is about. And I don't think that's wrong. No, I'm going to continue to dye my hair, to be honest. I'm just, I've just started with the copper. I'm not going to stop now. Um, right. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about when you talked about risk, we've, we've really uh, gone on here, but um, you talked about work. And actually, I feel really responsible because you talked about this quite a lot in your questionnaire because you talked about your Patreon, no. which I essentially <laughs> sat on your chest and beat you around the head to make you do. Because I believe in so much, so much in what you do and the fact that I think that your voice is incredibly important to have out there. But you've talked about the fact that it was um, the biggest risk for starting my Patreon and listeners, she wrote, and I blame you as you encouraged me to do it in brackets. <laughs> Although objectively people would think it wasn't a risk, it felt like one because my ego professional reputation was at, was massively at stake. What if nobody reads it? And that to me really speaks to your personality which is if you're going to write something if you're going to put something out there it has to be worth people's time money and attention so some people might read it or see you saying that patreon was a risk and think that it was a confidence thing i don't think it's a confidence thing with you i think it's a as i think it is a am i putting out a quality product that i can put my name to so it's not about am i good enough it's about is this worth people's time money and attention and I think you think about the end user slash reader way more than anyone else I know you see I've got quite an ego from the point of view that I think that what I do is good and I don't think that I ever doubted that what I did was good but I suppose that I have always had some form of external validation that it's not just me saying it's good. And so, for example, if a newspaper that sells millions of copies wants to print my stuff, then that must mean it's good. Like, if a university that is one of the best universities in the world wants to give me a degree, that must mean that I'm good at what I do. And my external validation for my Patreon, I guess, comes down to the number of people who were prepared to pay for it. And... I I don't know what I would have thought. I mean, my Patreon also, I should probably say at the moment, is on hold. I keep on pressing the pause, pause, pause. And I think what I need to do is actually admit that it's not something that I have the time and the energy to devote to at the moment, which I'm really sad about because I loved doing it. But my situation's changed. Like, it isn't just me anymore. I've got you know, nursery fees and stuff to pay. And I think I always used to say as a freelancer that my time was money. But now it is even more so that that's the case because it's not just that if I'm not earn, if I'm not working on something that's earning me money, I'm not earning money. I'm actively paying out money so I can have that time to work. 
And I think that's really focused me and my attention. And so I'm really proud of the Patreon content I produced. I'm really like grateful to the people who subscribe to it and engaged with it. And I'm so thrilled when I see people like Laura Kennedy on Substack doing what she's doing and making a real success of it. Um, I don't think I committed to it in the way that I probably should have done because I, and I feel like I made a lot of excuses about that and they're probably not good enough excuses to justify why I feel like it didn't work out. And so a lot of my stuff was like, you know, you can start a Patreon, you can start a Substack, or you can sell a line of makeup, or you can write a book or whatever. And if you've got a really big following on social media already, you only need a small percentage of those people to buy it or subscribe or whatever. And my social media following was really not that significant. And I guess as a percentage, the number of people who signed up to pay for my Patreon wasn't bad. But I then was in a position where I would have to grow my social media following in order to be able to grow my Patreon. Or I would have had to do far more self-promotion and marketing than I was comfortable with. Um, And so I think I chickened out of it, basically. Mm -hmm. But again, that's because you tried, at least you tried it. Oh, yeah. I'm really proud of myself for trying it. And I'm not saying, I know I was talking to someone else the other day and they're like, oh, you can do a Substack. Everyone was doing a Substack. And I was just a bit like... I don't think I am going to do a Substack. I'm certainly not at the moment. There may become, there may come a point where I engage with the idea again of being my own publisher. And I can see, I like, I love the freedom and autonomy that that gives you. But at the moment, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing for me to be doing. It feels like an indulgence that I can't afford. I think that probably comes down to the excuses that I'm making so. Well, speaking of excuses, um, that's another question that I ask all of my guests. And yours came down to people, the excuses that you make for other people. And you talked about something that I think a lot of people can relate to. I definitely can, which is in the past, you've made excuses for other people, for their behavior, mostly in personal relationships, and almost that it wasn't their fault that they behave like a dick because they had bipolar disorder slash toxic masculine role models slash fear of commitment, but you subsequently came to the conclusion, and this is what I want to unpick, that why someone behaves in a certain way is less important than the fact that they do. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and I think... That is something that is about um, self-preservation. And I think that it's something that, I guess, 
it's about boundaries and it's about realizing that it kind of doesn't matter what someone's motivation is. They might not have meant to upset you, but the upshot is that you're upset. And you can, on paper, you can change the way that you respond to someone or you can just decide that you don't want to spend time with that person. And maybe not spending time with that person is a lazy way of doing things. But I had a similar situation with a friend years and years ago, like a friend from university whose life was in a very different place to mine. She was married and had children. And she, on more than one occasion, would say something that wasn't meant to be upsetting to me. But it did upset me. And, you know, there is that whole thing about other people can't make you feel a feeling. You, mm. you know, you decide. Like Eleanor Roosevelt, Roosevelt, who said that? Someone, someone more emotionally intelligent than me. Um, but I realised that there was no point trying to have a conversation with her about it because she didn't understand that she was doing it. And she wasn't necessarily saying anything wrong. She was just saying something that totally, like, sideswiped me because it was based it it was probably based on the assumption that everyone had a partner or that everyone thought about things the way that she did and for a while I just decided to step away from it because Mm. I didn't see the point in having confrontation about it I don't shy away from confrontation at all but in that particular instance I just didn't see what would be gained from it her particular perspective on life at that point was very different from mine and you know we've subsequently come back together maybe because our lives are more similar maybe because both of us have like our corners have been rubbed off a little bit but at that particular moment in time it didn't matter to me that she didn't mean to upset me she did upset me and the way that I got around it was just by not spending time with her and I think that like that's what I mean about you know there can you can have compassion for the fact that someone has mental health problems or that someone has a drinking problem or whatever it is and you can try and help them you can try and do all sorts of things to you know, help them help themselves. But if ultimately the way that they behave has a negative impact on you, I think you just have to accept that if that's not going to change, you have to change the situation and not be a part of it. Do you know, I think you can also tell when someone is saying something to be spiky. I think you can tell someone's motive pretty well that you think. Even if it's not obvious, you'll kind you kind of get a feeling if you think, oh, Someone might say something that on the surface doesn't look as though it's intended to hurt, but you kind of know they brought up that topic because they, you know, it's the very subtle psychological warfare that I think, unfortunately, women are exceptional at. And I'm saying this as someone who went to an all-girls school. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I suppose when when I gave you that answer, I was mostly thinking about men and I was mostly thinking about men that I've been in relationships with rather and it wasn't necessarily stuff they said or maybe it was stuff they did or maybe like whatever it was and it just yeah and I, I made a lot of excuses for a lot of people for a really long time and then I just realized that actually do you know what I don't care if it upsets you that you're not part of my life anymore you're not part of my life anymore because I can't do anything I had a really wonderful experience of sort of realizing my own emotional growth recently because I was around some people and they're the, they're the type of people I've known them for a very long time but hadn't seen them for a while and they are the sort of people who I am drawn towards but because I have like um, a homing beacon to uh, high maintenance people and I was in their company again 
and I could feel all of those sort of all of that static electricity around them and in the past that would make me go woof, right into their personal space and try and have a conversation with them and I just felt it and turned my back and later that afternoon I think I was walking home I was oh my god I think I'm a grown up what just happened because I felt all of the things that I'd felt before but though I had a completely different different response because instead of wanting to go uh get get closer to it I got I just pulled myself further away which I was which was pleasing that's good emotional growth I love it emotional growth live in action there you go um interesting so has that helped you make peace with past relationships if you're if the examples that you were thinking of specifically were about relationships with men Yes. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think also, I think time and space and all the rest of it helps you make like sense of past relationships, doesn't it? And like, when I think about the relationship that I'm in now, and when I think about how the people from my past might have reacted to some of the situations that we've had to face over the last couple of years, I'm so glad that I'm not in a relationship with any of them. And it's really funny because I remember a friend saying to me years and years ago, after I was devastated after a breakup in my mid-30s, and she was just like, maybe he just realises that he can't be the person that you need him to be. And I just thought that was a bit of a cop-out and that that wasn't true. But actually, if I am going to be compassionate, then I do think that a lot of the relationships that I wanted to work out that didn't, didn't work out because those people realized that they probably couldn't be the person I wanted them to be. Interesting. Do you, does that mean that you were, were putting pressure on them to be a certain way or were sort of expecting them to come up to your speed? How did that, how did that show up? Um, I don't think I necessarily put pressure on them, but I think I am the person that I am and I'm quite unapologetic about it. And one of the things that I've always been unapologetic about is my intelligence. And I think from there were certain people who I've been in relationships with who worried that they weren't on a par with me, like wrongly, actually, because I don't think I ever went out with anyone who couldn't keep up from that point of view. Um, but I do think... When I think about the kind of emotional intelligence that my husband has, very few of the people that I've dated prior to him have that sort of level of emotional intelligence. I and joke. I don't think I realised how Sorry. important that was to me. No, I just, I just don't think I had realised how important that was. Yeah. I joke about you being my clever friend because I've just, I think it's, it's fairly flipping obvious how clever you are. And that's why I call you the forensic beauty journalist. And I make reference to your intelligence all the time because I admire it. Um, but has it ever felt like it hasn't been something that people have admired? Yes. I, I mean, I, for a long time, I blamed the fact that I was single on the fact that I was smart because I didn't think that men necessarily wanted to be with women who were as bright as them. Um, and to a certain extent, I still don't. Like, I don't know, a lot of my 
a lot of people who I thought would want very intelligent wives didn't necessarily end up with women who I thought were their intellectual equals. And a lot of friends didn't date women who I thought were their intellectual equals. And I think it did make me think that actually being an intelligent woman was a bit of a burden. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you go onto dating apps and you put in your list of likes and you also describe yourself, you don't you don't have to tick a, an intelligence box. You put in your level of education if you want to. But that's not the thing. Just hearing you talk about that's made me realise you put in kind of whether you want them to, I don't know, what colour. You don't even do that. But like, obviously, you look at pictures and hair colour, eye colour, height, that kind of thing. They're the ones that seem to be really important. But yeah, no one talks about the intelligence side of it because I guess that's something that you you have to find out for yourself. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like, I don't think you have to have an Oxbridge degree to be intelligent. I do think that, and I don't even know if we should admit this, at one point after someone broke up with me because they said they felt intimidated by my intellect and by the friends that I hung out with, I joined a dating site that was exclusively for people from Oxbridge. Not because I wanted to date anyone from Oxbridge, but because I hoped that if they were on an Oxbridge dating site, they were comfortable with the idea of women being as smart as them. My husband didn't go to Oxbridge. He's incredibly intelligent. He's One of the things I used to say about him when I first met him is that he's read all the books that I would like to have said like to be able to say that I've read and I haven't he completes you <laughs> <laughs> together you are your perfect library <laughs> that's why it so works <laughs> but you know so yeah let's switch gears to work again because I think this is really interesting because I, I asked you about the obstacle that you've had to overcome and you've talked about being a freelancer now you went freelance a couple of years into was it a couple of years into your career yeah. because you got made redundant I got made redundant and then I started doing temping at the Guardian of the Observer and I started doing one day a week at the Daily Mail and I did that for about a year and applying for jobs that I didn't get and then my editor at the Mail just said to me why don't you go freelance full time and I promise I'll commission you and she did. Thank you Sasha Slater because <laughs> I'm not quite sure where I'd be now if she hadn't um, and yeah I... I have been freelance for 20 years now, since March 2003. And you that was when I started on magazines. And it's interesting because you talk about the daily hustle, because it's the hustle to start the day with a blank page, fill it up with an idea, get it commissioned, get that thing written, get all of the evidence, get all of the quotes, submit it, pub, get it published, that whole thing, then get paid, which is a whole other requires almost as much muscle and energy as actually writing the damn feature and can take as much time. And you said that was a really big obstacle. And as I was reading it, I thought, actually, I completely know what you mean. But also, I think that it's part and parcel of freelance life, which is that no one tells you that's part and parcel of freelance life. I think you're sort of almost sold this idea that it's going to look a completely different way. And the fact that, for example, you have to actually sometimes threaten people with small claims court to get paid which I never thought would be the case if you have done work for them um 
the fact that that's part of it was was completely new to me so when it happened for the first time when it happens for the first time to, to you or to me or to anyone that we've known it is like they have been shot they are so wounded that this is part of the experience but yeah I think we've all kind of over years come to realize that's actually just that's part of the writing process weirdly but I like I, I think the thing is that I went freelance when people weren't freelance, there were like so many more jobs on magazines and newspapers. There just weren't that many people who were freelance. And I write from the, like, from the start because I didn't, I mean, yeah, Sasha commissioned me, but like that wasn't, I needed more than that. And so that whole kind of like cold calling, spending a week coming up with ideas and pitching, pitching those ideas and hoping someone's going to like pick one up, then having a week to write stuff and then sort of starting all over again was very much what I did from day to day and very much, you know, I had in my mind, right, how much money have I made this month? Like, does that cover my travel card? Like, does that, you know, my rent, my travel card? And then it's like, oh, okay, I can afford to do X, Y, and Z. And I think kind of because of that, I still, I've always had that kind of hustle aspect, as I think you probably call it these days, in mind about my work. Um, And also, I think it's really important as a freelancer to acknowledge it and to recognise that. And so in terms of obstacles, like literally every day is an obstacle in a way that I don't think you realise it is when, I mean, you have different obstacles, but I think if you have a salaried job where you know that you're going to get up, you're going to go to this place, this is the work that you're going to do, you're going to get a cheque at the end of the month or, you know, you're going to get payment into your bank account at the end of the month and you know how much money that's going to be. It's just a very different way of life. And I think it's really good as freelancers to acknowledge that it is a lot harder. No, maybe that's unfair on people who have salary jobs. It is hard in different ways that I don't think are hard if you have your own salary job. Mm. Yeah, it's part of the package, I think. That's the thing that I've come to understand is it's just as important as every other aspect of it. (laughs) You You can't get annoyed at every time, otherwise you'll just be annoyed all the time. And also, you know, I love a spreadsheet. So there comes a time when I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to do my invoicing. The thing that I never thought would happen, listeners, is that I would create a spreadsheet that I would then give to Cece. But that's exactly what happened yesterday. I am not a fan of spreadsheets. They made me go cross-eyed. But uh, And we don't have to go into details. But essentially, I put together a spreadsheet. And I said, actually, Cece, you might find this quite helpful. And so actually... Okay, like, I love your spreadsheet. And I'm very grateful for it. I hate to piss on your chips. But my husband would be like, that is not a spreadsheet. That is a list. And I mean... (laughs) Basically, that's what he's supposed to be. I thought I was good at spreadsheets till I met this man. He does all sorts of things like pivot tables and like properly manipulates data in spreadsheets. And I'm like, okay, fine. That, yes, no. I, okay. <laughs> You're so, you really have pissed on my chips. No, <laughs> no. The be- that, so a spreadsheet was a better environment for that kind of information than a Word document because it can be easily manipulated. But it is essentially a list that you can chop and change. (laughs) That is true. Does Ben give lessons? I'm sure he would if he asked him lessons. (laughs) Give me a lesson. I normally just send him something and say, can you make this work the way that I want it to work? Actually, can you give him the spreadsheet I sent you and then can he sort of sex it up a bit and make it all properly spreadsheety and then... It needs numbers in it. It's only got names and email addresses. It needs numbers to be a proper spreadsheet. Sorry. Right. I'm not very doing things. that publicly on air. I feel so good about my spreadsheets. You can cut that. You can cut that. I'm going to leave it in because it's real life. Um, 
What else is I going to ask you about? Oh, challenges. This I thought was very interesting. Accepting that I'm not as ambitious for myself as I thought I was when I left university or more accurately realizing that what I'm ambitious for now is not what I was ambitious for when I left university. And I think that that can be really um, arresting because if you have got your eyes set on a prize, to then adapt what that prize will be before you've achieved it isn't giving up on that. It's that you've got access to new information and you realize there's a better prize on the horizon. But that shift can be quite a tricky one to make. You can think that you're kind of copping out of going for that one. And it sounds like that might have been slightly what was going on there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but then I think the thing is that how on earth can you know what you want to be or do when you leave university? I and mean, for start, you're 18. For a second, you've got no idea what that looks like. And, you know, I thought I wanted to edit a magazine or be a columnist or whatever. And I those were kind of the yardsticks that I wanted to hold myself against. And then I suppose I spent more time in the industry and realised the sacrifices that those things involved. I went freelance very early on unintentionally and kind of always thought I would only do it for a bit until a proper job came along. And then by the time I was getting offered proper jobs, they were really unappealing because they would have meant me having to change the lifestyle that I had created that worked for me, that really was a work-life balance. Um, but, but yeah, I do think there is a disjunct when you have an idea of what you think success looks like to then go, actually, do you know what? This is okay. Like, this is okay because it means that I can go and work in a ski resort for you know, a month or for a season, or I can go and ski for a month, or I can take a day off midweek because I'm dating a medic who gets days off midweek, or, you know, like those sorts of things. And realising that the titles are less important than the life as a whole. Mm. And I think that has been quite challenging. And actually thinking about it even more so recently, having a child and being in a relationship and acknowledging that because my job is not the main breadwinning job and because my job is not the one that has a guaranteed salary at the end of the month, it's my job that is in inverted commas slightly less important and my job that probably has to give when there's a childcare issue. And that's been a big challenge. And that's been a really like blow to my ego but it's practicality so you're able to rationalize it and just go well that's just how it is and yeah there's no point wrestling it yeah but I think it is you know it's part and parcel of the thing that I'm coming to terms with which is that I'm no longer an I we're an us and I you know for a really long time my job was really important and my ability to earn my own money and you know, pay my own mortgage and all of those sorts of things was very, very important. And I valued being self-reliant and I didn't like the idea that I would have to kind of give any of that up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of a kind of a bigger thing, I think, mm. which I am slowly coming to terms with. But how, you know. how are you coming to terms with the medium in which you work, i.e. print media, mostly? I know you do digital as well, but papers, magazines, 
how are you coming to terms with that becoming obsolete and is that too dramatic a word it's not too dramatic a word and the way I'm coming to terms with it is burying my head in the sand and uh, <laughs> just hoping for a miracle I mean it's really difficult because I love print even though I realize that a lot of people just aren't buying it anymore and I can see that it's got a shelf life and I don't know how long that shelf life is um I would like to think that the work that I do and what I have to offer will be of value in whatever medium. But I do feel that the environment has to change and actually move to a place where people value content, if you want to call it that, enough to pay for it. Because that's what's, that's the problem, right? You know, people people have to pay for it and people have to understand if they're not paying for it someone else is and like all of those sorts of things that I don't feel is really acknowledged and understood by the public at the moment and I do feel a little bit like you'll miss us when we're gone but equally I have to be pragmatic and so I suppose I'm not just burying my head in the sand I am aware that there are other things that I can do and for all that I love journalism and I love having the opportunity to come up with an idea that I think is going to be useful and interesting to readers and go out there and research it and write it and be totally objective in the information that I'm putting down. I also realise that those skills can be used in different ways. And so I am doing a lot more consultancy and I'm trying to be a lot more proactive about the consultancy side of things I do. Um, I'm doing more copywriting. I'm doing media training. I'm helping PRs understand how publications work and what makes a good story and all of those sorts of things. Because I think even if the medium is changing, I do still feel that relationships and understanding of hooks and stories and all those sorts of things are always going to be important. One would hope, one would hope, although some of the most ingested information out there is not fact-checked, inaccurate, clickbait. What used to be a clickbait headline is now a TikTok trend. I think it's mm -hmm. harder to... Um, I think it's harder to find the truth, which is why I think your voice is so important. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about, we're both talking as people who work creating content. You're a writer, I'm a podcaster, and there's some crossover with other mediums, but in the beauty space, in journalism, are you experiencing feeling as though you're aging out? Because that's something that I've really felt this year. I feel that as a 45-year-old woman who goes out and about and speaks to people who who are tending to be 15 years younger than me they there's a there's a massive disconnect so people on brands and whatever I'm going to things and I'm just feeling like I'm irrelevant to them we're not talking this we're talking about the same thing but we're not speaking the same language it, and I'm finding it quite confusing because as I said earlier I've never known as much or been as connected in this industry as I have as I am today and I'll be more so tomorrow. And yet somehow that feels less valuable than it ever has, which is really weird feeling. 
But I, I mean, I think we're probably only experiencing what a generation of people before us have already experienced. I remember Jane Cunningham years ago talking about being pissed off about some 20-something-year-old trying to talk to her about anti-aging skincare. Like, <laughs> I, so I suppose that there is a certain rite of passage. And I think part of the problem with it is that you have, um, by its very nature, PR starts quite young. And the sort of media-facing PR tends to be more junior because as you go up the PR ladder, you tend to be more involved with strategy, with pitching for clients, with all of those sorts of things. And so almost by default, the interface between PR is going to be, they're going to be younger than us if we're in our mid-40s because all the people who are, are our contemporaries have moved up that ladder. And so I, I do find that, slightly problematic because and I do think that you know that's part of the reason why I think it's really important for PR agencies to have people like us going in and talking to them about how you engage with people who are not their age Mm. Um, because we're a really important demographic like you know Nadine is a classic example of it's like you know we know that older women have money they have money that they want to spend and they're a lot more discerning about how they spend it and so you know there are going to be a bunch of products that are not necessarily going to be right for us as a demographic but equally you know our voices are important the people who we're talking to are potential consumers and so I don't feel like I've aged out of the industry but I do feel like there is an age gap between me and the people who are representing the brands in a lot of cases. Okay. That's good. Cause I think I was taking it quite, I was sort of feeling, it was making me feel quite demoralized and I'm sure people are listening who have nothing to do with media or beauty who might be also reaching this age and have felt similar things in their industries. And so I think it's important to hear that kind of perspective that you're sharing, which is actually probably the generation before felt it too. It's not unique to you. It is the very, the, just the very nature of sort of hitting dare I say midlife (laughs) and sort of having the perspective of the generation that we looked up to and also having the perspective of the generation who are coming up and it's sort of perhaps more transitional for us than perhaps it is for the ones coming into it because I certainly when I was a young upstart in the industry I didn't I was just I like to think I was quite reverential to the people who were older than me because I thought they had been around for ages and knew more than I did because they did (laughs) but um, I don't know I don't know it's an interesting one um right let's talk about the opportunity that you let pass you by because you said that you potentially had an opportunity to go and work in New York that you didn't take you know what I didn't have an opportunity to go and work in New York what I had was a real feeling of dissatisfaction about my life in London and I went and I sublet an apartment in New York for a month to try and work out if I could work there And I also thought similarly about LA. But I mean, I would have gone as a freelance. I mean, I hadn't even looked into visas or anything like that. And actually, the person who really did do it at about the same time that I was thinking about it was um, my friend Jane Mulcairitz. And she, I think she had some sort of visa through Grazia or whatever. But she moved to New York and she really made New York work for her. And she did loads of work, a lot of celebrity interviews and lifestyle stuff and things like that. And, you know, she properly did it. I don't, for me, I don't think it was an opportunity that passed me by. It was one of those things that I toyed with as an idea because I love New York and it was the only place I could ever imagine working 
that wasn't London because mm. I love the pace of it. Um, I mean, I think I would have ended up hating it. But also when I went over there, part of the reason that I wanted to run away from London was because everyone I knew was getting married and having kids. And I met up with some friends who lived over there and I remember one of them talking to me about how brutal the New York dating scene was. Mm. And I just thought, I'm just running away from a problem here. And maybe New York would be an amazing, like if I could have ever made it work, it maybe it would have been an amazing holiday, like, you know, a holiday from real life for three years or four years or whatever. But I just thought if ultimately what I want is, and this was when I was in my early thirties. And I thought if what I want is to be in a relationship and to have a child, I don't feel like I'm going to get that in New York. And so for, although it would be a great distraction, it's probably not going to get me any closer to my goal. I think it's really tantalising to think that transposing your life onto New York or LA or LA, simply because we've seen it so much in TV shows growing up, you think everything will be better. Everything will be better if you just go to New York <laughs> or go to LA and it will be perfect life. But um, actually, it can be quite sensible to realise that better the devil you know, so to speak. Yeah, I don't think I would have packed it in New York. I just, I'm not, I'm not polished enough. I just like I'd have had to have blow dries every day or something like that. Yeah, anyway. not, not for us. But actually, not an <laughs> so we talk about regrets here, and I think that's quite an interesting one because the way that you talked about that, you don't talk about it as a regret, and you actually think you wrote this answer about regrets that I just I've written at the end of it. Well, I love all of this. I don't know quite where to go in, so I'm going to read it because I know we're drawing. Please do because I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. I think you remember what I said. We're coming to the end of our time together, but I do want to talk about this. So basically I said, do you have any regrets? And you said, no. I think it's a very human trait to try to create a narrative that makes what happens to you make sense. And I think that whole thing of everything happens for a reason is irritating bollocks. But I was talking to a friend recently who was having a difficult time of things about how impossible it is to have perspective when you're right in the middle of something. And I was saying that when I think back to the lowest points of my life where relationships have ended or I've lost my job or been ill, things that at the time were really crap, I can see how they were the right thing. And it's not about fate, although as I've got older, I do increasingly believe in that Irish saying that what's meant for you won't pass you by. That doesn't mean if you sit on your ass, everything you need will end up in your lap. But I do think that to a certain extent, once you've done everything you can, you have to believe that you've created the right circumstances for the things that you're right for you to happen to you. Anyway, no regrets, because ultimately I'm happy where I am now and I wouldn't be right here right now if anything had happened differently. Perfect answer. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> It's true though. I just think, yeah, I that is very much how I live my life. And it feels a little bit pat. And maybe if I wasn't as happy where I am at the moment, I wouldn't have that philosophy. But and I and like I say, I do think it's a very human thing to try to make sense of random shit. And you know, I would love to have had a child earlier than I did. I would love to have had a child that could have met my grandparents and had the opportunity to spend more time with my parents who are like in their 70s and 80s but if I'd had that child earlier I probably wouldn't have had it with the person that I've had it with <laughs> it <laughs> my poor son <laughs> wouldn't have had him um and I think I probably would have had a child with the wrong person and you know but like I said if I if that had happened I'd have found a way to make that be the right thing so I don't, yeah, I, I think it's quite difficult to live a life entirely without regret. But I also think 
it's quite a useful skill to have to be able to contextualize the things that have happened to you and to try to remember when something is really shit that you only have a micro view on it at that time and it's impossible to have the macro view until you're several years down the line. I think it also for me I was thinking this morning about how this idea about how we're missold happiness that it's a state that you sort of get to and then it's yours forever or that happiness is somehow something that you have all the time and that within happiness there is no there is no bad but actually it's it's part of the tapestry isn't it and you can be happy at all times even when things are crappy like you can look back on your life and I'm and I can and I can think about gosh situations I stayed in for way too long that were making me really unhappy that were impacting my mental health and my physical health but I do realize that because of what I learned from those experiences I am now here and so I wouldn't change that because I learned some really valuable lessons do I wish I could have learned some of them quicker maybe but I didn't so who knows but I think it's really important as you say to contextualize look back and think actually this is all part of the tapestry and it doesn't mean that things have been bad or unhappy or sad or depressed or negative it's just part of it and the component parts equal a place where I feel good slash happy yeah exactly that and it is I mean like it's the crap about shipping learning experiences but I really think it is like I think I went through a lot of shit that changed me as a person and don't think if I, if I hadn't been through that, I don't think I would have met the man that became my husband and been open to a relationship with him if I was the same person I hope was before. Mm. And to end, actually, I wanted to um, talk to you very quickly about this because on my notes I wrote, yes, why on earth would you do a dress rehearsal? So I say at the end of the questionnaire, is there anything that I've missed? Please share anything else. And you wrote... There are evidence-based interventions that I've relied on when things have been really bad that have really helped me. The three good things, exercise is the most significant one and exercise and getting outside, of course. I've never really got my head around mindfulness. And although it's unpopular, I think there's a lot to be said for controlling the controllables and choosing not to think about the bad things you can't control that upset you until you're with your therapist. Sometimes there's a lot to be said for not confronting stuff that upsets you. And I wrote, why? yes, absolutely, why do a dress rehearsal for the worst case scenario in your head? And as somebody who has catastrophized many, many times and who thinks that, well, if I've thought about the worst case scenario, then I'm prepared. Actually, you just live that thing twice, potentially, or just once when you didn't need to. Yeah, exactly. But also, I just think, like, it's not popular to suggest that you should ignore the stuff that is upsetting. But if there's nothing that you can do about it, then it's just torturing yourself for no reason. And yeah, if you can sit down with a professional and talk it through, because I remember seeing a therapist at a point and she was like, you know, do you, something. we were talking about it. And I said, I just, and she said, how do you deal with this? And I said, I just don't think about it. And I said, and I'm sure that's really bad. And that's like, you know, you're going to tell me that's not the way I should, I should suppress these things. And she was like, it's fine. We can deal with it here. And I just found that so freeing because it was like, I mean, all right, if, you, if you're not dealing with it at all, it's probably not ideal. But yeah, I just, and I'm not always very good at it, but if I can ignore stuff that has the potential to upset me, then I'll just ignore it. This is why you get so many WhatsApps from me, because how many times have I messaged you saying, Claire, should I be upset about this? 
A lot of the times I have to look into it because I've just ignored it. But no, I mean, and I think there's a certain amount of self-preservation that, we're, again, I'm sort of talking about, like, I, you know, for a journalist, this is really bad to admit, but there were certain things when I was pregnant and there was a lot of really awful things happening. And I just thought, I'm just not going to read that news story. I'm just not going to engage with that bit of the news because I feel absolutely powerless to do anything about it. And... I, 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 why am I going to upset myself at this point? I don't know how you will take this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You were unnervingly calm as a pregnant person. As your friend, I was unnerved by how calm and chilled out you were as a pregnant person. You, you are possibly the most chill pregnant woman I've ever spent time with. I mean, I had a very easy pregnancy after having a really difficult time trying to get pregnant and trying to stay pregnant which I haven't talked about and I probably won't talk about but I was neurotically paranoid for a large part of the early part of my pregnancy I didn't I think part of the reason that I might have appeared calm about stuff is because I didn't really engage with it I couldn't actually believe that I was going to have a baby until he actually appeared Mm. um and I think that is possibly why but I also I I didn't feel bad like I felt I felt really good and I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes really late on so I couldn't like lie on the sofa and eat cake for the last bit of my pregnancy as I planned to and so yeah I was I was really quite healthy for a lot of my pregnancy and I felt pretty good and I enjoyed being pregnant I enjoyed wearing like skin tight lycra in a way that I hadn't done since I was 18 years old <laughs> and stuff like that. See, and... I put it down to your reliance on science and evidence and just kind of like the fact that you probably looked at what was appropriate for that day of your pregnancy. We're like, yeah, I'm ticking all those boxes. Today's going to be a good day. No, I did. I mean, I did obviously look at uh, evidence based stuff that, and realized that I could eat sushi as long as the fish had been previously frozen and, you know, there's. I need to find the name of the book, which was brilliant. Um, Expecting Better, written by a an American professor who looked into all of the myths or not around um, pregnancy and why you should or shouldn't do these things. Caffeine, alcohol, raw fish. Um, and I found that very comforting and very useful. Uh, but yeah, I mean, no, I just, I just think I felt very lucky to be pregnant, and I just didn't didn't take it for granted. I like that control the controllables and Mandy Hickson the RAF pilot former RAF pilot came on the show and she talked about that and she talked about the best way of controlling the controllables is to practice so loss of directional control on the runway is what you say calmly instead of oh my god we're ever spinning the wrong way on a runway <laughs> help loss of directional control on the runway right let's we know what we can do with that and I, that stays in my head. Like if ever I'm having a funny day, even though I'm not losing control on the one, I'm like, lots of directional control on the runway. Control the controllables, Ems. <laughs> Brilliant. I need to get, I need to get you out for dinner with Mandy Hicks and I think you would love her. Anyway, it has been a joy to pick your brain in a way that I is very different from how we've normally communicated in uh, this way. So thank you. You've been excellent. I've enjoyed this hugely. Thank you. I have been enjoying it in a slightly uncomfortable way but no thank you um tell the people where they can find you 
I am clairecoleman.com. I am at Features Journal on Instagram, which is the only social media I vaguely engage with these days. Come find me. Come ask me geeky questions. I will, of course, put those links in the show notes. But thanks for coming back, Claire. It's been lovely. Thanks, and Speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.